time for The Outspoken Cyclist, the weekly conversation about cycles, cyclists, travel, trails, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. WJCU broadcasts and streams The Outspoken Cyclist on-air show at 8 a.m. every Saturday morning. In Northeast Ohio, tune in to 88.7 FM, or worldwide, listen in at wjcu.org. Our weekly podcast is available at the close of the on-air show at OutspokenCyclist.com or download it with your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Hello and welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks, and this is our show for October 3rd, 2020. Well, happy October, everyone. Although it seems almost inconceivable to me that we're in the 10th month of the year when so much of it has been spent focused on a pandemic and an election. And yet, here we are. My first conversation this week is about a technical solution to a problem many, if not most of us, have experienced when riding in urban and suburban areas. So you come up to an intersection and you stand there. You can't trip the light. Last week, Bike Portland posted an article about thermal video detection of bike riders at traffic signals, and I said, hmm, I need to learn about this. The company is FLIR Systems. It isn't new to thermal imaging. In fact, the company's been around since 1978. And through a series of acquisitions, coupled with emerging technologies, is doing some really fascinating work to bring a safer experience to VRUs, vulnerable road users. That's you and me. Their work also crosses into the automobile and coupled with AEB, automatic emergency braking, which is found in a lot of new cars, can make the driver's side of transportation a lot safer for pedestrians and cyclists. FLIR's Matt Bertoy and Chris Posh will explain how the systems work and what we might expect our intersections to look like as these systems come online. As we've watched bike racing slowly make a comeback, the Pikes Peak Apex Race, presented by RockShocks, managed to put on a four-day stage race that offered great prize money, attracted a terrific field of riders, and it kept everyone safe. Executive Director Micah Rice walks us through that event and offers a guide to other race directors looking for ways to establish safety protocols in this time of COVID. Lastly, I have a terrific conversation with Diva D., of DVD Cycling. She's right here in Cleveland, Ohio. DVD, whose given name is Diana, though no one calls her that, played women's semi-pro football for many years. Yep, you heard that right. When injuries sidelined her and her son was young, she decided to hang up those cleats for a pair of cycling shoes. Coming from absolutely zero knowledge about bicycling, she's built a huge following for her rides, clinics, and her not-your-average-slow-rolls in and around Cleveland. She's also immersed in the Black Girls Do Bike organization, Cleveland being one of over 90 chapters in the U.S., and gives us some brilliant insight into why it matters that Black girls do bike. It's a full plate today, so let's get to it. When the autonomous vehicle hit and killed Elaine Hertzberg, who was walking her bike across an intersection back in 2018, the realization that self-driving cars were definitely not ready for prime time became agonizingly clear. 
Today, many new technologies coupled with some high-tech solutions that are being repurposed for the automobile are being implemented to ensure a safer driving and vulnerable road user experience. FLIR Systems has been involved in thermal imaging for a long time, and their TraffiSense cameras for intersections, as well as other products for in-car adaptation, are the subject of my first conversation today. Hello, Matt. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guests this week. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us on. It is my pleasure. I read a piece by Bike Portland, which I don't think was their piece. I think that they were republishing it about the use of thermal video detection devices that are going to be installed in Washington County, Oregon. So as cyclists, we all know, and especially today with all the carbon fiber, you can't trip lights. And knowing how many cyclists do things like blow through lights or all kinds of other bad things until a car comes along to trip the light, I think that these systems are probably a really important sort of, I don't know if it's a real breakthrough, but if cities start to use them, it's going to really make a difference. So give us a little bit of background on the company, FLIR Systems. Sure. Uh, FLIR's actually over 40 years old. We started in 1978 and, and with airborne systems. A lot of people are familiar with us for our applications in, in military and law enforcement. Uh, and that's still one of our largest applications. Over the years, though, since then, we've uh, grown quite a bit, whether it's organically, you know, growing our technology or through a number of acquisitions. FLIR has gotten into a lot of other applications, including traffic. And that came from an acquisition in 2012 of a company called Traficon. From the technical perspective, because we have a lot of geeky people who listen to the show, a lot of engineers, uh, I'd like to know what exactly the system is. We'll start with something called TraffiSense. I think that's what's being used in, in Portland or in the Washington uh, County area of Oregon. What is it? Yeah, that's true. So the TraffiSense 2, the second generation TraffiSense 2, we refer to as a smart sensor. And we call it a smart sensor because it incorporates not only the sensor itself, and in this case, a thermal imager, which is a whole nother discussion because thermal imaging brings a lot of benefits, especially when it comes to uh, bike detection. But anyways, it incorporates that thermal imager along with onboard analytics or algorithms that are detecting the objects in the scene and classifying those objects. So we're saying, is that a pedestrian? Is that a bicyclist? Is that a vehicle? And we're treating those objects differently. And that's what's allowing us to bring the benefits for bicyclists into play. You know, in other words, hey, uh, is there a bicycle waiting at the intersection uh, or are there a number of bicycles and being able to give them priority without even pressing a button? So this, this system, again, as a smart sensor, incorporates all of those factors and integrates into the signal controller at the intersections. Or if you have mid-block crossings, which are, you know, crosswalks in the middle of, uh, uh, in a, in a middle of a street block, it coordinates that information and tells the controller, hey, we have pedestrians, we have bicyclists, let's give them a priority now. So that brings up a question that I have about traffic in general. Couldn't these or could these systems, and this is totally irrelevant to bicycles at this point, but I I just wanted to know, could these systems be installed at intersections where 
there are lights now that you wait and wait and wait and wait, and there is no cross traffic. So could they be installed to change the way we do intersections? So let's say we're waiting for a light, there's no cross traffic, the sensor says there's no cross traffic and changes the light, even if it isn't on the regular cycle. Does that make sense? It does. It's a great point, Diane, and and that is one of the key features or benefits of this system. Matter of fact, uh, a lot of cities, and you brought up Washington County, for instance, they're very bicycle-oriented, which is great, and they have a combination of shared bike lanes, in other words, where bikes are sharing with vehicles on the road. They also have dedicated bike lanes, and, and really the system is able to distinguish between the two, and that's one of the biggest benefits that we bring. We're able to detect those bicycles, count the number of bicycles even, and tell the controller, especially if there's no cross traffic, right? We could say, look, let's go ahead and give the bicyclists a green phase, uh, meaning, you know, get the green light for the bicycle, and a lot of cities are starting to adapt what we call a priority green phase. In other words, you know, giving bicycles a chance to go before the vehicles and have the vehicles stay back, say, five seconds. The benefit of this, and uh, as bicyclists, you know, we know that it can be problematic if the car is turning right or left. They may not even notice a bicyclist. Right. Yeah, exactly. This allows the bicycle time to get out into the intersection, get noticed, get more visible, before the cars actually start. A lot of benefits. Bottom line is it's about what we call in the industry, uh, industry vulnerable road user safety, vulnerable road users being bicyclists and pedestrians. And, and you probably, and your listeners have probably seen the statistics, while it's great that uh, vehicular deaths you know, from accidents have been declining, and a lot of that has to do with you know, uh, vehicles becoming safer and safer, but deaths for vulnerable road users has remained steady at best, if not increased, in a lot of areas. So these initiatives are, are crucial to providing that extra level of safety, not to mention comfort, too. It, you know, a lot of people, a lot of bicyclists, it, you know, to have to go up and press the button, it, it can be a pain. And uh, with our systems, that's automatic. You're being detected. Matter of fact, a lot of systems out there, it, it's aimed such that you can be detected, and if the timing is right, by the time you reach the intersection, it may have already turned green for you without having to do a thing. So that was going to be my next question. How far in advance will the cameras detect cyclists or pedestrians? So one of the issues we have coming up to an intersection is, especially we ride a tandem, so you know, cars will wave us through, but it's sort of like, all right, I've already stopped, which means to get started again, you have to, you know, start rolling and clip in and do all of those things. How far in advance can these systems detect a cyclist? A lot of factors go into that. Of course, line of sight, right? In other words, assuming that you have a straight line of sight, no obstructions, signs or trucks or whatever it may be, it, it also depends, though, on the field of view. Even though this is a thermal imager, it's the same physics as a, as a camera, a regular camera. Uh, if you have a very narrow field of view, that means uh, objects that are further off will be larger. They'll take up more what we call pixels, right? Pixels right. of resolution in the scene. 
And that, that allows us to go further in distance. Generally, we're not going to set up a system. I think capabilities are greater than this, but there are practical limits to where we don't necessarily want to go above, oh, say, 150 to 200 feet. Well, that sounds far. It, it is pretty far, yeah. But again, with practical limits and et cetera, and what else you may be trying to do with the sensor, because these sensors pull a lot of duties simultaneously or certainly have the ability to. And not only are you detecting bicyclists, but you may also be detecting pedestrians waiting across the street. And they certainly fall under that safety for vulnerable road users as well. And we're also, frankly, detecting vehicles. Uh, to say, hey, we've got people waiting at the stop bar or uh, even further back. So depending on what you're doing, depending on the number of sensors and the fields of view, that's going to really dictate, you know, the design and, and the distances that we're looking at. Let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Matt Britoy, who's the director of uh, ITS Sales for North America, and Chris Posh, who's the director of engineering for FLIR's ADAS AEB systems, which I think is what we're going to talk about next. There was, a, was this unbelievably horrible accident in Arizona, and it wasn't an accident. It was a crash of a, an autonomous vehicle that hit a, a cyclist in a crosswalk and killed her. Uh, and it just threw up all kinds of upset and anger and, you know, these autonomous vehicles. And I know that a lot of new emergency systems are, are coming online Cars offering the automatic emergency braking, AEB, which I think that's what we're talking about, Chris. They aren't the whole yep. story. So why do we still need thermal video detections if our cars do have automatic emergency braking where they can sense that something's happening? What's different about what you're doing? Automatic emergency braking it has proven to be very valuable uh, to help prevent accidents. And if you look at NHTSA's website, which is uh, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, they, they uh, applaud the fact that new cars are starting to include automatic emergency braking in, in, their, in their vehicles. And so far, Tesla, uh, Volvo, Mercedes are all including that. And by 2022, all 20 OEMs are going to include AEB, automatic emergency braking in their vehicles, which, is, which isn't an accomplishment. But do these systems work is the next question. Right. And how effective are they? As you you may be aware, visible cameras do they do a lot. They're great during the day, but they have they struggle at night, and in in low contrast situations of fog or smoke or just a black person on with a black background, for example, this and our eye our own eyes have a hard time at night. So you have to really rely on the the headlights and if you can get some contrast with these visible cameras. That event you just talked about was a tipping point for thermal imaging, where the industry realized that, you know, visible cameras do have this practical limitation, and what do we do to solve that? And that's where thermal, thermal imaging comes in, because it does see well during the night and during the day, of course. It picks up heat, and it specifically does extremely well at seeing pedestrians, which are basically glowing day or night because they're emanating heat and the, the thermal camera sees those pedestrians. So AEB with thermal imaging uh, is is now becoming a real hot topic. You're saying that these cameras can be installed in the cars. So thermal cameras have been used in automobiles 
for almost 15 years. They've been used in automobiles as a driver's aid and a, and a fairly expensive option, around $2,000. Hmm. BMWs, out Porsches, they already use this technology. And BMW does a spectacular job where in Europe, they can use a spotlight to, or a, like a fog light to illuminate detected pedestrians. And that really gives the driver uh, added awareness of pedestrians in front of them. Uh, but the the real benefit of thermal imaging is when you connect that thermal image to your automatic emergency braking computer. And when the computer says, hey, shoot, there's there's a pedestrian in front of me, it can slam on the brakes. And I think, as you mentioned earlier, most of these pedestrians that are on the rise, there's over 6,000 in the U.S. that are killed each year. Most of these things are happening at night. Right. So you need a system that can detect detect uh, pedestrians at night, and that's what a, where the thermal camera really comes in. As new infrastructure projects come online, are are urban areas installing your systems? Are they beginning to see not only the benefit, but probably there has to be some sort of a cost benefit to it also. I mean, I know they're expensive on the installation side, but once they're in, it seems to me there might be a cost benefit there too. Well, the beauty of the last couple of years for thermal imaging is the volume has gone exponentially up and the costs have come exponentially down. Okay. So instead of a situation where the user was talking about a couple thousand dollar option for a thermal camera, now they're an order of magnitude lower. So they can be used and are being tested in in vehicle uh, infrastructure type environments where there's thermal cameras not just in the car, but also in the infrastructure, like like what uh, we're talking about here for the traffic infrastructure. You can use the thermal cameras in the car or in the infrastructure, just like you would a visible camera, to to um, really improve the performance of challenging lighting conditions, which is where we need to improve because that's where a lot, like I said, that's where a lot of these accidents actually happen, and not broad daylight, but they happen in challenging lighting conditions, which is where the thermal camera really excels. And and if I may add to that. Absolutely. One of the benefits that we see and that our customers, the cities see in using thermal detection for traffic is not only are we increasing vulnerable road user safety, but at the same time, we're increasing the efficiency of the traffic. And there are before and after studies and metrics that cities can use to show how many hours, uh, commuting hours are saved during the course of the week, over the course of the year. And that can actually translate also to reductions in CO2 and other greenhouse gases. And, and that's actually used in turn for uh, attaining grants, uh, funding for these systems. And there are, there are grants specific to those kinds of savings that, that can be achieved using these types of systems. That makes so much sense. I mean, nobody wants to sit in his or her car for hours on end in traffic. And if traffic can be better served with thermal imaging, why not, right? The last thing I want to ask about are these autonomous vehicles, because everybody was talking about them. It seems like it's quieted down some. Are we looking at more electric hybrid vehicles and then added thermal imaging and AEB stuff? and less at autonomous vehicles? Or do you think that it, they will eventually come online using your systems? I'll answer that. My, my personal opinion is that uh, the industry got really far fast with the capability of self-driving. But 
the problem is you, you can get really far with your technology, but then realize that there are so many corner cases that then you need to start worrying about. And you can think about it as, as how many, uh, the nines, 99.9, 99.999, how many nines of, of, of effectivity do you have with your system? And like I said, with the accident in Arizona, that was a tipping point for thermal imaging when, they, when the industry realized that, well, we really want to drive at night too, and not in perfect weather conditions. And our business model really would want us to, to get people from you know downtown to rural areas and we'd like to do that at night too and that was a case where the system didn't detect the pedestrian and FLIR went and replicated that that same test environment and we easily saw the pedestrian in that same environment and i can tell you that that very many self-driving car companies are now actively uh looking at our technology and how that can improve uh self-driving but it, it's a complicated task to make a 100% safe and effective self-driving vehicle. And it's taking longer than, than people thought. And it may take even longer than a couple years from now. It, my personal opinion, it could take maybe even several years before we get to the state where the technology can be safe and effective. And in my own personal opinion, there's going to be thermal cameras on those cars. Well, this is really, really fascinating. I know that Many cyclists who ride especially carbon fiber today would be really appreciative of having these systems. And where are these? I didn't even ask that. Yeah, actually, they're mounted up on the infrastructure, the existing infrastructure. So it could be uh, a pull off to the side. It could actually be the signals, the infrastructure for the signals themselves. Huh. Yeah, Diane, you should look at, look at intersections, and often if you look up, you'll see uh, cameras up on the, the poles. Where yeah, the I do are. see them. Yeah, so it basically imagine a thermal camera right next to it, and the oh. visible camera doing a good job during the day, and the thermal camera doing an excellent job during the day and during the night. So, did they need? Oh, well, one camera is trying to catch you speeding, I guess. <laughs> well, there, there there are those cameras too. Yeah, which we don't we don't get into actually. Okay. We're, we're strictly on the safety and efficiency side. Well, we've been speaking with Matt. Toy. He's the director of ITS sales for North America and Chris Posh, the director of engineering for FLIR's ADAS AEB systems for FLIR systems. You know, look for thermal cameras in your neighborhood. How can people find out more if they're interested in learning about this? And especially any of my urban planning listeners. And we do a lot of talk about urban planning and how to change the way we, our cities are. There are a lot of great organizations out there that are, are centric, uh, pedestrian and, and bicyclist centric. There's actually a, a very interesting initiative called Vision Zero. Oh, yes. Actually originated out of Europe. But, okay, you have, yeah, perfect. So, yeah, and Vision Zero will also have, I think, some very interesting links in terms of uh, where to go to learn more about technologies that are being used. And that's just one example that I'm thinking of off the top of my head. But uh, you can certainly, while it dives into the the weeds, if you will, very quickly, you can certainly go to our website, which is clear.com. And then for traffic specifically, that's forward slash traffic. And and there you will find pages that that land on, on the products we talked about, the Traffic Sense 2, for instance. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me today. I know my listeners will be very interested to know that maybe thermal imaging, thermal camera imaging might be coming to an intersection near them. Thanks so much. I hope you have a great day. 
Thank you, Diane. All right, yeah, you guys. You, have a good one. Bye-bye. Matt Bretoy, Director of ITS Sales for North America, and Chris Posh, Director of Engineering for FLIR's ADASAEB, join me for a somewhat non-techy chat about a high-tech subject. From a safer riding and walking experience to cleaner air and fewer commuter miles, the FLIR systems seem to be a logical and intelligent solution. You can find out more about FLIR, F-L-I-R, at FLIR.com. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll speak with Micah Rice, Executive Director for the Pikes Peak Apex. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. You're listening to the station that is your home for college radio in Cleveland, 88.7 FM, WJCU, University Heights. The Outspoken Cyclist is proud to have Bike Law as a trusted partner. If you find yourself in need of legal advice or assistance as it pertains to any cycling issue, log on to bikelaw.com. Diane Jenks. While most of the domestic racing season has been canceled for 2020, in pretty much every discipline, the Pikes Peak Outdoor Alliance said, nope, let's see how we can produce a four-day stage race, call it the Pikes Peak Apex Challenge, and keep everyone happy and safe. And so they did. Here is my conversation with Micah Rice, the executive director of the Pikes Peak Apex. Hi, Micah. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for talking with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. It's been a few years, and i uh, excited to be talking with you again. Well, you have a new endeavor, and it's pretty exciting because almost everything this year either got postponed or canceled, but the Pikes Peak Apex Challenge is happening. Let's start with the Pikes Peak Outdoor Recreation Alliance because I think it's part of this. What is it, and what are the goals? Yeah, the Pikes Peak Outdoor Recreation Alliance is kind of a group of outdoor businesses and nonprofits and government entities, and they focus on raising uh, awareness about outdoor recreation in the Pikes Peak region. Their mission is, is to strengthen the outdoor recreation industry for the whole region through leadership and collaboration with different entities and uh, really kind of just highlighting all of the outdoor recreation assets that we've got here in the Colorado Springs and Pikes Peak area. Let's talk about your Apex Challenge. First of all, how is it connected to the Alliance? And then we'll figure out how the challenge came about and what it is. Right. The Pikes Peak Outdoor Recreation Alliance is the fiscal sponsor of uh, the Pikes Peak Apex. Essentially, that they're the owner of the event. They uh, take responsibility for the profit and loss, but it's a nonprofit event, just like the PPRA is a, is a nonprofit organization. So the idea is that any money that's actually left over or, or made from the event is just directed straight back into the trail system in the Pikes Peak region so that the residents can enjoy it as well as visitors. Um, it's a nonprofit entity um, that's kind of uh, being run by a nonprofit. I think that's an interesting alliance partnership. So let's talk about the challenge itself. It, it's really kind of a big deal. You've got some 
luminaries, some big names. It's a four-day event, a four-day race. Tell us how you decided to do this and then how it combines these different cycling disciplines. You know, it kind of came about with a, a, a group of people that were already involved with Pikes Peak Outdoor Recreation Alliance. They wanted to bring in a, a large-scale mountain bike event. You know, they were looking at options like Ring the Peak, you know, a big ride that you can go all the way around Pikes Peak uh, that's all uh, off-road. But then we, you know, started, started talking about a multi-day stage race. Actually, interestingly enough, it was... Um, at first, it was a discussion with Iron Man because Iron Man is kind of getting into that space. Uh, they own the Cape Epic and the Swiss Epic, and they were looking for a large-scale North American event. And so there was a discussion there on the Iron Man side about a six-day North American championship in Colorado Springs. Long story short, uh, Iron Man decided not to uh, run that event here, and the city, after you know kind of uh, discussing it internally. Um, everyone just said, well, you know what? We did all this work to, to try to present this. Let's just do it ourselves. <laughs> and so that's kind of how it started. I was actually just a, a volunteer helping at that time. I belonged to a uh, sports economic team group here in Colorado Springs. And so I was just kind of helping out. But we were able to kind of roll this in. I currently work for a company called Sports Strategies, which is actually based out of Birmingham, Alabama. And part of my job is to develop events for different cities and regions. And so this worked well with uh, what the, the, my role was. And uh, we were able to uh, work with the Pikes Peak Outdoor Recreation Alliance to, to start this event here in Colorado Springs. Let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Micah Rice, and we're talking about the Pikes Peak Apex Challenge. The event is over now, but looking at the results, it looks like the winners in both men's and women's sort of ran away with it. Chloe Woodruff was four minutes, 27 seconds ahead of her nearest competitor. And then you scroll down to the men and you go, whoa, 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 nine minutes and 52 seconds. <laughs> Russell Fitz, yeah. Finsterwald like killed the field. Yeah, well, Russell's local. I mean, obviously, he's a super strong racer. He's the uh, reigning marathon mountain bike national champion. Ah. Not only does he know the, the local trails extremely well, but he's a super strong rider and good at the long days. So he definitely did run away with it. The only stage he didn't win was the first day time trial prologue, uh, which was just an 11 mile, you know, somewhat technical course. Um, Ryan Standish won that, another well-known cyclist. And then on the women's side, Chloe kind of, you know, she kind of hung in there the first stage, uh, but then really didn't start running away with it until stage three. Uh, I think her teammate Rose Grant won the uh, prologue. And then Evelyn Dong, um, you know, strong rider from California, came out and she's a great climber. And uh, there was some tough gravel, wide open climbs uh, on stage two. So she won that stage. And then Chloe, kind of in some of those, some of the uh, big burly backcountry downhill stuff on day uh, three and four, she started running away with it then. So uh, it was actually quite a battle on the women's side. I think. Russell pretty much took control from stage two and on, but um, still some great racing. You know, what I find really interesting is there was a really substantial purse 
like $25,000 was put up. Where did all that money come from? And it looked like it was fairly evenly distributed. Yeah, we put up uh, $25,000. We actually wanted to put up more, but um, I think a combination of COVID and, and some other costs we had kind of related to that situation, we ended up with a $25,000 prize purse split evenly between the men's field and the women's field. And so for these pro riders, uh, I, I think it was probably the largest purse they raced for all year. Right. Just not a lot of events that happened and, and the large scale ones were all canceled. So um, we kind of ended up being the largest prize purse these folks raced for all year. That's really kind of cool that there was an event. Let me ask you about your preparations given COVID. What were some of the things that you needed to do to change to actually make it so that this race happened? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of things. We made a bunch of changes on the bike and off the bike. The biggest change for the riders, I think, was the change in the start format. You know, what we wanted to do was kind of combine a number of different disciplines and kind of the the feel and kind of do like a mass start event. So that was a little bit more like a Grand Fondo or a gravel grinder where you've got this huge mass start, hundreds of people, everyone rolls out together, and then uh, you uh, kind of sort it out by chip timing later. Uh, obviously, we had to kind of bag that idea, um, and we we uh, changed the first day to a time trial. So we had 30-second intervals between each rider. We lined everybody up at least six feet apart. Everyone had to have masks uh, on um, until they you know, were literally on the start line. Uh, and so we were able to keep everyone you know, quite distanced that way. We always tried to do fastest to slowest whenever possible. So that it minimized passing, and so the time trial was was reasonably easy to you know to kind of deal with that way. Um, uh, on days two, three, and four, we did groups of twenty five. Again, we we had these different waves, and everyone wore a mask until they got to the start line, and we kind of had this this grid start where um, you know until people get really got moving, they were you know they kept their masks on and 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 kept distance. We know now uh, with the research and what's going on in the pandemic that there's a lot less risk in outdoor events than there are in indoor situations. You can never get it down to zero risk in terms of um, contact, but but we did our best to kind of keep people um, distributed until they were really racing and out there uh, with the with the wind going by. We felt that was uh, the safest thing we could possibly do. And, you know, other things that we really wanted to do, we wanted to do a big expo with spectators, and kids races and stuff going on. I mean, all of that um, kind of had to be pushed to 2021. You know, we wanted a beer garden. We wanted to do a big after party afterwards downtown. And all of those things kind of went by the wayside. Um, even the, the rider meeting um, that we did, we, we, we did it on WebEx before the event started. So we kind of did a live video meeting with the riders um, a few days before they arrived. And so all of these things were to really stop the spread of, of COVID-19. And, and hopefully we, we uh, kind of calmed some of the fears of some of the riders and, and created as safe an event as possible in this current situation. Clearly something worked because you had plenty of competitors and, and they seem to all have uh, finished 
you know, in their own time, whatever it was. But I think mm-hmm. that's really awesome. Yeah. Were, did you have any sp- um, spectators or did you pretty much c- put the kibosh on that? Well, a few. We really we really didn't push for spectators. Obviously, we 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 want spectators to be able to come out. Um, the kind of the way that we communicated about it here in Colorado Springs was, um, you know, and we got good coverage by the newspapers and the TV stations and and, and others, uh, other journalists. Um, we said, hey, we'd love to have you come out and watch uh, the competitors race. Our recommendation was that you go find your your favorite trail. I mean, we, these are big loops. We were doing 50 mile, 40 mile loops on some of these days. So we said, Hey, take your family, go find a, a trailhead and, and, and walk in. Here's the course of the race. You can kind of come and find your own spot on the trail and, and cheer on the competitors as they, as they roll by. Uh, and, you know, we obviously what we asked people to wear masks, stay anywhere close. We asked spectators to not come to the start finish area. I mean, they weren't there for very long anyway, because these are such single large loops. That's kind of how we communicated it. We had a few spectators, probably mostly friends and family of the runners, uh, and that was fine. We really pushed people to come out and and uh, and join the race somewhere out uh, on the slopes of Pikes Peak. Makes perfect sense, and it, it seems like it was a great venue to do it that way. So I assume that you are planning a 2021 repeat? but maybe with a little less uh, angst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. Uh, we're actually planning on the same weekend. So it'll be uh, September uh, 23rd to 26th in, uh, in 2021. Uh, we hope to have a little bit larger field, but it'll never be a gigantic field. We just, you know, the, with the, the way that we run this, it's, um, you know, it's going to be more like hundreds of people instead of, you know, thousands like some of these larger gravel grinders are. We've got great support from the city here in Colorado Springs. And we've got some really amazing sponsors that have stepped up and, and all of them supported us through all of this. Um, you know, the largest being Rock Shocks, our presenting sponsor. Rock Shocks is actually located right here in Colorado Springs. They do all of their research and development here, um, part of the SRAM Corporation. But, um, you know, they employ about 150 people here in town, and, and it was it was kind of cool for them to, to have this in their hometown as well. The last thing I want to ask you to do is tell my listeners how they can go look at what happened this year in terms of results and who entered and what it looked like. And then that website will apparently be what they'll be able to look forward to in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our website is pikespeakapex.com. And uh, we've got links to, you know, all of our photos and our daily videos. Um, and, and for those of you out there who run your own event, we went ahead and, and, um, and put our, our COVID-19 safety plan right there. It's a 12-page document. It's right there on our website for all to see and all to use. We did a ton of work on what it takes to, to run a bike race um, in, a, in a pandemic situation. Uh, we hope that um, all the hours that we put into, you know, trying to research this and, and, and create protocol, uh, we hope that other race directors can, could use that moving forward. So that's there as well. Um, but we did, you know, we've got a lot of content that we've pushed out um, between daily videos on YouTube, as well as, um, you know, some great photography of what it looks like to, 
to ride the mountain bike trails on in, on Pikes Peak in the fall with the Aspens going off and and uh, and everyone having a great time. So it's all right there at PikesPeakApex.com. Michael Rice, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's a pleasure to reconnect with you. Good luck for 2021. And if other events are coming up, you need to let me know. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much, Diane. All right. You take care. Micah Rice is the executive director of the Pikes Peak Apex presented by RockShocks and the VP of Event Strategy and Operations for Tourism Strategies. For more information on the race, including photos, race results, and to find the strategy guide to putting on a safe event, log on to pikespeakapex.com. We're going to take another short break, and when we come back, I want to introduce you to DVD. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. I'm often told I have a lot of energy, and I would have agreed until I met Diva D. She's an ex-semi-pro football player and current director of Diva D Cycling. Diva D is a fireball of energy and enthusiasm for cycling, and her passion for training, teaching, leading, and immersing herself in the bike culture here in Northeast Ohio will become abundantly clear in our conversation. Meet Diva D. Hello, Diana. Welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest this week. Thank you and good morning. Good morning. Yes, it is morning. And I got to tell you, I was looking at your website. It's really impressive. I love it. Diva D Cycling. And how did you end up spelling Diva, D-E-V-A? Or is it Deva? How do you pronounce it? Um, It's Diva and it's spelled D-E-V-A. H, and then the letter D, like Diva, Diana. So there's a long story. In my early 20s, me and my girlfriends would come together for the holidays and just hang out. And um, one of my girlfriends brought her sister that weekend. And we was already like hanging out over the phone and just, you know, chit-chatting once in a while. And when we finally met, she was like, Diana is not is not the right name for you. Like you're named after Diva. So like when I see you, I'm going to call you Diva. And everybody agreed with it. And I've kept that. I've kept that name for over 20 years. And that's how it came up. It's better to call you Diva than it is to call you Diana. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, that works for me. It works for me. I think my listeners are going to find it very interesting that you played women's football. And then yeah. transition to cycling. So tell me about a little bit about the football and how you got involved in that and then how you ended up with cycling because you are immersed in cycling. <laughs> I would like to start with um, passion turned into another passion, you know. Sure. I found football on a fluke. I was a water girl for a women's flag football team and I was just there doing practice just to help out. They were missing some people on the squad. So I was like, you know what? I'll jump in. You know what I'm saying? I have a track and field background. So all they said was, you take the ball and we're going to open it up for you and you run straight through the hole. That's how <laughs> it started, right? So after that, like, they noticed that I had the speed and so they wanted to see if I knew how to catch. At that point, I knew how to catch 
and have the speed. Next is learning how to do the route and understanding plays. Just one day out the blue, this was in Cincinnati. So um, the flag team I was playing with was called the Play Hers. And then I went to tackle football with the Cincinnati Sizzle. And how that happened to one of the Play Hers games, Icky Woods came up to the field and said, hey, we're recruiting for a football team. And I was like, sure, I'll, I'll do it. You know, I'll try it out and see what it's all about. I don't know. Here I am in my 20s and 30s playing tackle football, traveling around the U.S. playing football. <laughs> but in my 30s, after having my son, I had some real major injuries, broken bones. I broke my hands, broke my toes, ribs, ankle. I messed up my knee really bad. So I have a lot of hardware. And just one day I said, I can't do this no more. Like I was going up the step, steps, like suiting up the steps with my son in my lap. And lucky for him, I children adapt very well because I've always been an athlete. Um, he would just hold on to me, you know. So I just couldn't live like that. I couldn't see myself going into my late 30s and into my 40s with all these injuries that can be eventually debilitating to me. You know what I'm saying? I'm already suffering from arthritis. I already have restless leg syndrome. I have a lot of things that are going on because of these injuries. And I was like, I, I can't continue to do this with my, with my children. But I had a really good physical therapist who uh, was also uh, the physical therapist for the Bearcats team back in the early or mid to 2000s. And he knew I wanted to get back out on the field. So he kept putting me on the stationary bike. And I was like, why am I on this thing? You know what I'm saying? And he kept telling me, like, it's going to loosen up the kinks in your legs and your knees. It's going to help you, like, you know, just loosen up a little bit. And literally, that's how I found cycling. You know how you have that little voice in your head and it just brings up something from your past that just a, a good word, like something just dropped. And we was here in Cleveland and I was looking for something to do. Like, I was considering coming to play for football, well, playing for the Cleveland team again. But I was like, I can't do this. I can't play football. I have way too many injuries. And I'm literally afraid of getting tackled now. Um, before, I would jump off the ground and tackle somebody. <laughs> but um, with those fears, I kept having this little bug in my ear telling me to, like, you know, get a bike. And then the bike lanes here. And then I see people on bikes. And I was like, you know what? 36 years old? I'm going to get me a bike. When I tell you I was going to get me a bike, girl, I went on Craigslist at the age of 36, bought a men's bike, Schwinn road bike, 1975, <laughs> $50. And that was my first bike. And on my first ride, I did 18 miles. Mind you, I didn't have a water bottle cage. I didn't have nothing but myself, a fanny pack, and my cell phone. And that was the worst ride of my life. I was dehydrated. <laughs> I had the worst headache. I did not know what it really took to really ride a bike safely. Through that experience, I was like, okay, I need to join a bike group. I know there's some bike groups out here. And just so happened, I looked for bike groups. And the first thing that popped up was Black Girls Do Bike. Wow. I found a Cleveland chapter. And then I started learning about things here. I found I found out about slow roll. My first couple of months into cycling, we were already going to the end of the cycling season. So I really didn't have that much experience. So going into the next cycling season, I kind of just tried this off a whim. 
I'm an athlete. I can do this. Girl, hell no. <laughs> Cycling was so hard for me to adjust to. Like, I wanted to go fast. I wanted to have all this power and speed. But I was like, I ain't going nowhere. <laughs> so the following season, I was just riding with people, just trying to learn what they were doing. But nobody really, you know, reached out. So I learned over the next winter. I was taking spin classes. And a year later, after I just started, I came out the gate running. And cycling was my new physical therapy. It knocked the kinks out of my body. I was no longer achy because, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom when I first moved here. So, like, trying to find my niche or trying to find an activity that made, that made me feel whole and made me feel like I was doing something again, that's where I found cycling. And when I tell you I am in love with the two wheels of fun, <laughs> I really love women. You're addicted. Let me remind our listeners, we're speaking with Diva D. She actually has this amazing website that you can go and take a look at what she's doing here in Northeast Ohio. She's also a member of a group we're going to talk about, uh, Black Girls Do Bike. And I have a great story about that. Um, I do want to ask you some of the things about some of the events and stuff, but let me tell this little story. So I'm standing in the Whole Foods checkout line and there's this beautiful woman and she had on this beautiful jersey and she had on cycling shorts. And I look at the back of the, I must've been behind her because of the back of the jersey said, black girls do bike. And I'm like, who are you? And what is this group? And she says, well, go look it up. <laughs> and I never saw her again, but that's how I found out about black girls do bike. Wow. So I want to know a little bit about the events that you had on your calendar. Everything's been canceled for 2020. And yet you had events July, August, and September. Were you able to actually do some of these events? Yes. When I tell you everything that's on that calendar was done, the only time a ride was canceled was because of weather. Hmm. So leading up to my first group, big group led ride under DVD cycling, it took me months to even want to get it out there. Like July is my birthday month. July, I turned 40 this year. And I said, you know what? How am I going to celebrate my birthday? I love riding my bike. And if I'm going to bring in 40, I want to bring in 40 on two wheels. And I want everybody to celebrate with me. Well, I was up until like four o'clock in the morning on July 1st, afraid to publish my website because I knew I had all these events. And I thought about it and I thought about it. I'm like, oh my God, it's COVID. People are not going to show up. I really thought, I thought all these things. I never come into an activity or a ride thinking that, oh, it's going to be successful. I'm going to get all these people. I never think that way. The first thing I was thinking, like, nobody's going to show up, but I'm going to continue to ride. You know, it's my birthday. But I was already leading rides pre-COVID. And um, people knew that I do a lot of things safely. And my first ride, people came. The first ride was um, Not Your Average Slow Roll Monday. And my, the goal for that ride was to have people come out and um, ride through neighborhoods they've never been through, shed light on the underserved communities, let people see what, what, what they think the hood looks like and change that. How many people showed up? So for, I think for my first ride, I think I had like, Ooh, I don't know, maybe 20 people. That's great. Yeah, the next ride, the next one doubled. And I've had consistent riders. The lowest I've had was eight. 
the most I've had was 50. Then that's just a DVD cycling ride. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm new. I'm just starting off. But to have these people actually show up. And another thing, like I did a, a, I did a ride for justice, um, bike ride shedding, once again, um, providing education to people about the rich black culture that we actually have here in Cleveland. And on that ride, I wanted, I wanted people to understand, like, we have all these beautiful murals and we have all these beautiful places that people of color have really made a change and a difference in our community. And yet nobody is speaking about it. People are dying every single day because Sadly enough, there's people who think that we are lesser than that we are less than them, that we are not we're level, we're not human. You know what I'm saying? People look at us as animals. So that's the main reason why I did the uh not your average slow roll, in which I was just gonna end it in July, but people asked me to continue and here we are going into October and I have some schedule for October. So the next one, the next run next ride I did was the hundred miles of smile. I've done a few hundred miles before the July um, month, and I wanted to offer people of all riding abilities or, well, intermediate to advanced riding abilities who wanted to achieve that 100-mile goal. If you wanted to do 40 with me, that's fine. If you wanted to do 60 with me, that's fine. But if you want to do 100, I'm going to be there with you, and I'm going to support you. So I brought out my um, my bike. I put racks on it. I have my, pan- my panniers available. I put snacks, I carry a first aid kit, and I support everybody who comes to that ride. Um, and for that ride, I had a total of seven people who showed up and completed their first 100-mile ride. And listening to their stories and watching them cry when they're talking to me about achieving this goal where they thought they can only do 25 miles, one of the ladies kept saying, I can only do 70, that's all you can only get out of me. These men and women completed 100 miles with me for the first time ever. And this was during my birthday month. Like, there's nothing better than that, to just share those moments with them. And my rides are a fun ride, but girl, it's a workout. You know what I'm saying? We're going to take some heels. I'm sorry, a century is always a workout. We're going to take a real short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak with Devadee some more. We want to talk about Black Girls Do Bike and the organization. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. are back on the outspoken cyclist if you're just joining me i am speaking with deva d she she's got more energy and she does more stuff she's here in northeast ohio which is really cool i haven't actually met her face to face yet but i plan to and she teaches people to ride she takes people on rides she has a fabulous website and group and we're going to talk about a national group but I want to ask you one question which we didn't get to in the first half of our conversation and that is how many people have you actually taught to ride a bike people who never rode a bike before I think in the past two years I've taught about 70 um, women (gasps) and they're obviously they're mostly adults they never have ridden a bike before 
Correct. And most of them are in the age group of between 45 to 65. That's awesome. I really love that. Let's talk a little bit about Black Girls Do Bike. It's an organization that is well known throughout the U.S. There, We have a chapter here in Cleveland. Tell us a little bit about what the organization is, what it does, what it offers. Black Girls Do Bike is a organization that basically gives women of color who like to ride bikes a platform. It does so many things. It empowers, we teach, we inspire And the real reason why I started was because there was a lack of representation. And once it started, it just blew up. I've only known about Black Girls Do Bike for four years now. And there are so many great women that are a part of this organization. There are, I think, currently 90 chapters. And we have our first international chapter, which is Black Girls Do Bike London. And that was just recently announced, I think July or August of this year. Black Girls Do Bike provides women information about cycling apparel, bike fit. It gives women the opportunity to dive deeper into their community and offer instruction or give people the opportunity to do things on bike. It's a true, true sisterhood on two wheels. So let me ask a question about the issues that keep women of color from bicycling. It's important that everybody has the opportunity to ride a bike, in my opinion, of course, because I'm Mm -hmm. very opinionated about that. What are some of the (laughs) issues that keep women of color from cycling? The reason why Black Girls Do Bike showed up, lack of representation. That was a big fear. Afraid of riding alone, like safety is a really big issue. Good point. Especially during this day and age, it's a really big issue. Some ladies do not have the access or know exactly where to find a trail, so lack of resources, or they don't know exactly where to go. Google is great and all, but like sometimes when you're trying to search key things, it'll take you anywhere but to what you're looking for. Another big thing is that not having technology skills, not being able to um, locate things on their phone or on their map. That's something that I've recently noticed about some of the ladies that I ride with that are a little bit older who are just starting out. They'll have to reach out to a younger (laughs) family member to help out with the technology issues. Hmm. I think about safety, regardless of color. I think we're all afraid of what's going on out there. But there's a different sense of safety, I guess, for women of color, especially trying to ride alone. I'd like to know if you know what some of the remedies are. Obviously, your organization, your DevaD Cycling here in Cleveland, is that a remedy to being more inclusive? Is there a remedy or is that the remedy? Is that a remedy, one of the remedies? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. What else do you see? Since the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, one thing that I've noticed is that the state sincerity, the state concerns, we're looking for real people who are really genuine. You know what I'm saying? That's the remedy. Be really genuine. Be, be yourself. You don't have to overdo it because you have a different race and you want to welcome a person of color into your fold in the cycling community or into the fold in your life. You, you, don't have to, you don't have to give us a story of the reason why you are so saddened about what's going on. We've heard it so many times. And for me, to be honest with you, I'm still new to this cycling world. It just so happened that I am truly passionate about this, but I'm still a baby. You know, and I still get that from people where they're, oh, my God, Diana, I'm so sorry what happened. Like, 
okay, I get it. Thank you. But, you know, let's go have fun on two wheels. Let's go ride our bikes. You know what I'm saying? This is our moment to give thanks to nature. This is our moment to decompress. This is our moment to talk to somebody. This is our moment to have a great time. I just want people to be sincere. Be honest with yourself and be honest with others. That's a good remedy to make people feel included when it comes to bringing them into your fold, period. And that's just an honest to God. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so honest about that. (laughs) Somehow I didn't expect that answer. On the other hand, it is so obvious when you just step back and go, well, no kidding. (laughs) Really? Yeah. 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 So what do you think going into 2021? Obviously, we have an election in front of us. People are very nervous about what's going to be happening. We have a lot of issues with the economy. We have a lot of issues with work. Uh, And I'm not sure how cycling will figure into that. What are some of your plans for your local chapter? And and do you know what might be happening nationally? So some of the plans here in Cleveland for the Black Girls Do Black chapter we're um, actually looking into partnering with the um, local um, bike co-op right. um, in Ohio City. Um, we're also trying to um, adopt a school. Basically, you know how we have our bike to school days, our bike to work days. Right. I really want to try to adopt a school and, you know, probably start a bike program in a school or within the Cleveland School District. And then also we're just going to start doing some more sisterly rides. And when I say sisterly rides, meaning we're going to be going out of town if we're allowed to go out of town, but they're not going to be far. Um, The farthest we're going to probably go is four hours away. Um, The shortest time is about 45 minutes. But we're going to take sister trips. We're going to take retreats together. Um, we're just going to really, we're going to really bond together and change what Black Girls Do Bike looks like here in Cleveland. The goal is to become more social. The goal is, be, is to really do some community work. There's a lot of ladies in our group right now who are doing some great things outside of cycling and who are really diving deep into community work and doing a lot of things or actions to really change what the culture looks like right now you know, help be a resource, help be a mentor, um, a therapist or whatever, we want to dive a little bit deeper. Um, We really want to jump into the community. We really want to be one of the cycling groups to be looked at to do a lot of activities here in Cleveland, participate in activities here in Cleveland. And we want to just be a super badass group of women who really are here to make a change. So in 2021, we got a lot of big shoes to fill, but there's enough of us. So I think we can do it. And on the national um, spectrum, I had a chit chat with Monica and she basically said that it really depends on what COVID looks like in 2021. And I completely agree with that. Sure. You know, sure. We're very COVID conscious. Um, I'm actually going through the COVID-19 training so that, that that can be another thing people know, like, look, I am COVID conscious. I am COVID safe. I'm already first day CPR certified. I am a licensed cycling instructor. So I am here to keep you safe as well as myself safe. And what I'm doing is to just get people out here to ride bikes and have fun and feel good. 
hopefully we can have a solution to COVID-19 so things can get back to not normal, but at least we're having fun again and not always uptight or have this sense of fear. So the last thing I want to mention is how listeners can find out more about your work as well as the work of Black Girls Do Bike. Um, you can follow Black Girls Do Bike nationally on uh, Facebook at Black Girls Do Bike. You can also check out the website, www.blackgirlsdobike.com. You can get information about the founder. Um, if you're ever traveling and looking for a chapter, you can go there and find a chapter as well. And if you want some merchandise, you can go on our website and get that too. For the Black Girls Dubai Cleveland chapter, uh, we're on Instagram under Black Girls Dubai Clee. And we also have a Facebook page, which is only open to women. Sorry, fellas, but you can always join. Um, there's a few questions on there. Fill them out and uh, come join the movement with us. For Diva D, you can follow me on Instagram under Diva D, that's D-E-V-A-H, the letter D, on Facebook and my website, Diva D Cycling. Um, the website is DVDcycling.com. And I'm also on Twitter under D Diva. That's D, the letter D, the word Diva, D-E-V-A-H. And yeah, if you're here in the Cleveland area, you're looking for a ride, you're looking for a ride partner, you want to experience something different, you want to take a tour, you want to go long distance, you want to cycle across America, reach out to me. Um, I ride anywhere and everywhere. And my goal is to ride across America. So if you want to join with me, let's get this party started. And um, if you want to support the movement, um, I do have a few pal, Diva D, Cycling. And the same thing for Black Girls Do Bike. Um, Black Girls Do Bike also has a PayPal. Um, if you want to support the group, please support it. If you want to sponsor um, locally here in Cleveland, we're looking for amazing sponsors who believe in our movement. The same for Black Girls Do Bike nationally. If you are not here in Ohio and you're in a different location and you're listening, please go to BlackGirlsDubike.com. Join one of the amazing groups. Get to know us. Come ride with us. Join our movement. Be a part of um, a sisterhood on two wheels. Well, Diva D, thank you so much for talking with me today. What an enlightening and interesting conversation. We've been talking with, Actually, Diana Hildebrand is her real name, but everybody calls her Diva D. And you can find out more at DivaDCycling.com. Have a great fall. Enjoy the cooler weather. And let's hope that 2021 is a just smashing year. Thank you. All right. You take care. <laughs> Diva D joined me from her home right here in Cleveland to talk about her work with women in cycling. In addition to all the information on her website, she also wanted me to let you know that on October 17th, she and the American Cancer Society are hosting Pedal in Pink, a ride to support Breast Cancer Awareness Month here in downtown Cleveland. You can find out more and RSVP at dvdcycling.com forward slash events. And if you want to find out more about Black Girls Do Bike, you can log on to their website, blackgirlsdobike.com. Com. That's our show for this week. I know we promised you Zapata Espinosa, but he was under the weather and had to beg off until next week. So there's something to look forward to. I hope you enjoyed the show. 
Follow us on Facebook, tweet us at Outspoken Cyclist Sanzi, or leave a comment on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com. I'd also really like it if you rated our podcast at your favorite app. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a great week. Stay safe, stay well, and remember, if you have a chance, go for a ride. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We hope you enjoyed this week's show and we welcome your thoughts and comments. We'll be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and most other podcast apps and never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.